Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Jack English and this is City Hall Stories. These are conversations with local government leaders who are imagining, designing and creating our future societies. Aspirational governance is the most effective way to build a healthier future. And this podcast is built to be a source of inspiration for anyone who looks out their window and says, let's do better. I hope the incredible humans you'll hear from deliver that inspiration. Today, we speak with Brent Stockwell, Assistant City Manager of Scottsdale, Arizona. Scottsdale is a prosperous community in the Phoenix metropolitan area, and Brent's role centers on driving a culture of high performance. We discuss the challenges and opportunities of collaboration between cities, flaws in the overall local governance structure, plus tear down the myth that you can't fight City Hall. Please enjoy this conversation with Brent Stockwell. So Brent, having read a a ton of your content for the Engaging Local Government Leaders Group, it's great to be able to connect. Starting from the very beginning, you grew up in a city that had a really large connection between local government and residents, with street names and statues of city managers. Can you shed light on what the factors were that actually created this really close bond? Well, I think that the close bond was really tied to growing up in one place, and that place was a great place. Great parks, great schools. I went to just three schools, all the way from kindergarten, all the way through high school. So one elementary, one junior high, one high school. Some of the same classmates from kindergarten all the way to graduation. I lived in the same house, the same time, the same neighborhood, caring neighborhoods. Most everything was in walking distance from my house. All all my friends lived a few houses away. I had a lot of opportunity to connect through the local government uh, baseball and soccer programs going up through parks and recreation. Uh, My first summer job was working on a county drug prevention grant. I think another really significant thing was that there were key adults, significant adults in the community that invested in me and what I was interested in. All those things kind of coming together uh, made it always feel like home and, and still does pretty much whenever I'm in town. And so this desire to kind of create places that feel like home for people, places that create positive memories, that is a passion that has uh, carried me through to the work that I do today. So looking back at your career, can you lay it out in terms of like a, a baseball card? So where have you worked in the past? Where are you working now? And even perhaps from an organizational perspective, what are the differences between the different governments that you've worked at in terms of how they operate uh, and how they carry out their day-to-day duties? Sure. Well, uh, from the baseball card perspective, I got my uh, undergraduate in political science and public administration from Kansas State University and my master's in municipal finance, management and finance from the University of Washington in Seattle. My connection with uh, Scottsdale actually started 28 years ago as a volunteer right after I got my graduate degree. And honestly, I wanted to be so much a part of this team here because I had heard about the innovative culture and uh, the great work of the city while I was in grad school that I I really tried to get here (laughs) for nine years before I got hired as a citizen liaison. And now I've worked uh, for Scottsdale in a variety of roles for nearly 20 years, including being assistant city manager for the past six. You know, I've worked in uh, three different communities. Uh, The first opportunity I had was uh, as a management intern when I was in grad school at the city of Federal Way, Washington. 
And Federal Way at the time was uh, only a three-year-old city. It had gone overnight from being an unincorporated part of King County to a city of 75,000 residents, you know, as a result of an incorporation vote. It was one of the largest cities at the time to go from, to become an incorporated city. At, at the time, uh, although we were serving 75,000 people, we only had about 115 employees. Uh, most of the services that we provide were contract out. So we were what we would call now a contract city. And so that had some distinctives about it. Great thing about it is, is even though we had this large community and lots of opportunity, uh, knew pretty much everybody that worked there with only 115 people it was pretty easy. And most of us worked in one building. So it was very easy to go around and do that. I uh, had a period of time, uh, you know, as I mentioned, while I was trying to get back in local government uh, where I wasn't in government, in local government, I served as a performance auditor for the for the state and doing audits of state programs like uh, occupational safety and health and revenue. And that was a great experience to learn uh, my analytical and evaluation skills. But it was uh, really looking backwards more than I want to be looking forwards. And it was also more or less involved with you know, the community than I really desired to be. So I also uh, spent uh, five years uh, working as a youth director in a local nonprofit organization working with junior high and high school students. And uh, while that was rewarding, it was a great way to give back to those uh, people that invested in my life when I was a kid. Uh, it wasn't what I was educated and trained for. And so I really kind of felt that drawback uh, to local government. I was really uh, fortunate to get a job working for the city of Mesa, which is a city of about 500,000 people now. And I was doing neighborhood outreach work there. And so that was really an ideal situation for me. Uh, City of Mesa, the, the distinctive was that um, the, the people were really what made that organization great. I loved working with the people there, loved working with the people in the community. Um, and it was a great way to learn how to do kind of outreach and involvement work really well. And so I was very appreciative of that. My opportunity uh, with the city of Scottsdale did come after about a year and a half uh, in Mesa, and it was basically doing the same job I had been doing in Mesa, but as a uh, citizen liaison in Scottsdale. And so, again, working in the neighborhood department, you know, I, I started to see the differences between uh, the two communities. My take at the time, and, and granted, this is 20 years ago, was that there was really this sense that you can't fight City Hall in Mesa. And when I came uh, to Scottsdale, there was a sense that not only can you fight City Hall, you can win. I was definitely uh, engaged with community members working on problems they wanted to work on, working with staff from throughout the organization, learning out how to do that better as well. That launched me uh, into uh, an opportunity in the city manager's office nearly 18 years ago, later this year in December. And uh, it's kind of an interesting story. Um, I think we always focus so much on in our careers, if we get the right education and the right experience, that's what qualifies us for a job. And it certainly does, but uh, a little bit of luck doesn't hurt either. I was doing a, a project for the city manager at the time. They were, uh, she was doing a strategic planning effort. And so they were hosting a series of community meetings. And so they needed someone that was experienced in uh, hosting community meetings. And by that point in my career, I had learned that you never went anywhere without backup. Uh, and that applies to a, a, a myriad of uh, situations. You always kind of have a plan B. You always uh, kind of think through any situation to think how things might go wrong because they will. 
And at the time, I knew technology wasn't the greatest. And often you'd get into a meeting and a laptop would fail or the projector bulb would blow out. And um, then all the planning, uh, you know, would kind of, you know, not work because you didn't have that ability to, to give that presentation that the city manager had planned for. So I knew to bring a spare laptop and a spare projector. And uh, this time, uh, just as the city manager got up to uh, make her opening remarks, uh, the projector went out. There was a bit of a panic until um, her assistant said, hey, don't worry, Brent has this all covered. He's already brought another projector. Set it up, plugged it up, the meeting started at time, and kind of the rest is, as they say, history. Uh, she said, hey, that's the kind of person I want working in the city manager's office. And she gave me a job um, working as the first professional uh, support support to the city council. So I was actually embedded with the city council for five years, and that, that was a great experience. I think we could probably talk a little bit more about working with elected officials. Um, but then I was at a point where I was looking for something different. They created an, uh, an opportunity for me to do a couple of interim assignments. Um, and uh, then I came back to the city manager's office uh, in the midst of the Great Recession, worked through that. And so basically, uh, since then, my career has been a series of doing a lot of significant work, being successful at that, being asked to do more, adding that to what you do, and then being successful at that and being asked to do more and more. And that ultimately is how I, I got to where I am today as assistant city manager. Um, so Scottsdale, uh, you know, as, as a distinct place different than as an organization uh, and as a community different than Federal Way or Mesa, some of the things I like to say about our community are, you know, Scottsdale is a, is a destination. It's a destination for millions of tourists each year. It's a destination uh, for people who want to live in a high-quality community, um, and it's a def- destination for, you know, corporate headquarters and, and you know, other high-quality businesses and retail experiences. As a result, what I have found about the people that live in Scottsdale is that they have been able to be successful at whatever they've chosen to be successful at. So that's a great opportunity for us to really listen to and engage with and uh, involve uh, the members of the community in that. Um, I mentioned uh, before that the, the thought was here that you can fight City Hall. You know, that it, it goes right in line with that. There was this great opportunity to advocate and look for better ways of doing it. And I think uh, when you're trying to be the best, and I think that's really our goal to be one of the best, if not the best community in America, that pressure is intense. And so you always, you know, you always want to try and make sure that you're being as good as you can be. And uh, so I've been here in City Hall, particularly for 18 years, uh, most of it in the city manager's office. And Got to have a, a, a good view of that through three different mayors and a couple dozen council members, half dozen city managers, and it's given me a good perspective to, to learn and grow. I've always said that, I've always heard it said that uh, there's two times the people, right? Those that um, learn by running into brick walls and those that learn by r- watching other people run into brick walls. And I'm definitely the one that learns from watching others. So it's been a great experience to learn from the successes uh, and sometimes failures of others. Fantastic. And definitely do want to dig into that experience with elected officials, but touching on that idea of, I guess, fighting city hall versus city hall dominating the resident base, if you want to put it that way, and the differences between say Mesa and Scottsdale is the difference between that attitude of we can win 
more to do with stronger grassroots involvement from the residents themselves, or is it more to do with a more collaborative attitude from city staff and the city itself? Honestly, the, the biggest difference was about resources. So in Scottsdale, the community had resources to, to organize and uh, fund efforts to advocate for what they wanted. And that wasn't always the, the place in other communities. The other thing was, is the city had the resources that if we needed to plant a row of trees in between a project and a neighborhood to mitigate the impacts of that, do a variety of other things, um, we had the resources to do that. So um, I'm not under any delusion that being in a kind of a resource-rich community uh, definitely has its benefits, right? But I do think that probably the biggest misperception about local government that people have is is this concept that you can't fight City Hall. All the people that I um, have interacted with over my years here and in different local governments and, and my connections with other local governments is, you know, I think at, at the core of people that get into public services you, is you want things uh, to be as good as possible. I've never been in a conversation with where a group of people you know, came around and said, well, how can we make this city worse for people? Or, you know, how can we screw up somebody's life? I mean, that's definitely not why people people get into this. And I've never had conversations like that. So I think, you know, most of the time, uh, those of us that are in local government are, are thrilled when people are interested in the programs and the services that we're offered and are passionate about um, learning about how things can get better and are interested in um, advocating for new and different ways of doing things. The hard thing is this, and that is because these decisions that we have to make are often very difficult and they're very you know, reasonable people on both sides of the issues and very thoughtful and large logical ar- arguments for each side. But in the end, a decision has to be made and that decision also has to be consistent with the uh, legal uh, environment that we're in, right? Uh, Because we don't just get to do whatever we want. We have to do um, things consistent with what the state and the federal government and and the laws say. So, you know, I've, you know, I've taken it kind of as a a principle to try and uh, learn something from everyone. And I think that has been a really good principle or or practice to, to live by because especially in a community like ours, where you really can learn a lot from people if you take the time to listen to them and understand uh, their perspective and then also help them understand the constraints that we're operating in. So if we're speaking about some of those difficult decisions, and Brent, I know a couple that we'd touched on in previous conversations were, say, e-scooters or short-term rental regulation. How does a city, when there's so many different uh, conflicting perspectives and motivations and incentives, as well as pressure from elected officials, how do you even go about beginning to make a decision uh, on something that complex? So I think there's a, a couple things. One is, you know, I mean, we, we want to get a sense of kind of what others are doing, right? So what are, what are others doing? And, and our approach here is that we want to make it better, right? We want to make it better. We want to make it work for Scottsdale because what might work one place might not work here. Um, that also kind of comes to the regular regulatory philosophy, right? So a lot of these things are about regulations, there are really kind of two things that have been really influential to me throughout my career that really guide how I kind of walk people through the process. Um, one was one that I actually learned years or so ago when we were 
working on an anti-methamphetamine coalition, which was comprised of, I think, five cities in our area and two tribal communities. So they all were collaborating together to try and learn how to combat um, that problem at that time. And we were fortunate enough to go to a session where they taught us about environmental pre prevention strategies. And uh, this is a much more complicated topic and issue, but it, it really boiled down to this in my perspective. Uh, you're looking for things that either make it easier to do the right thing or harder to do the wrong thing. So that's like a, a key regulatory philosophy for me. We have those kind of two level levers. Can we make it easier to do the right thing or harder to do the wrong thing? The other thing uh, that I think is is particularly guided me, um, and I think this comes from, you know, working in a in a time frame and in a, a city and in a state where you know there's a strong pervasive feeling that you know less government is better than more government, um, and that is the concept of a minimum effective dose. You know, I think sometimes when people are thinking about regulation, they want to throw everything at a problem rather than figuring out just enough regulation to solve the problem. So what's the minimum effective dose? So just like for your prescription from the pharmacist, uh, you know, taking a whole bottle of pills doesn't make things better. Taking the right amount is, is what makes things better. And then I think finally along that is I always try to get down to what, you know, what problem are we really trying to solve, right? And what are the kind of key criteria for success? So in every kind of effort like this, whether it's uh, looking at scooters or short-term rentals or creating anti-discrimination ordinances or um, working on anti-methamphetamine kind of want to boil down to what is the problem you're trying to solve. And, you know, thinking back on the scooter issue when, we, you know, we were working on that with people that in the community that was were concerned about it, but also um, advocates of the industry, we really came down to kind of five key criteria that we threw out. And then what we did is we used that to evaluate kind of every aspect of what we were doing. And then also looking at, are we making it easier for someone to do the right thing and harder to do the wrong thing? And are we making sure that we're doing the minimum effective dose? So I think, um, you know, I, the other thing I'd add to that is that um, I think that innovation is really about taking what you know and applying it to what you don't know. Right. So whenever looking at problem solving, we we'll always try to learn about that problem and figure out how is it like or different from other problems? And are there solutions in other realms that we can apply to kind of innovate in this realm and make it make it better? So I think that what I've developed over time is kind of using these different levers and different ways of thinking about problems and then working to try and apply that in uh, any type of uh, situation that we have. The other thing that's, I think, really critical and, and important to think about that is I think it's really important to kind of read the regulations or the contracts or whatever that you have already and really make sure that you're fully using what you already have at your disposal before you ask for more. Um, you know, this also goes in the regulatory environment to, you know, what's another analogous situation? Can we apply that or extrapolate that for, to what we're doing here? And that, again, also is out of the concept of using fully what you have before you ask for more. So those are, you know, some of the ways that I've been kind of working through it. And, you know, the one thing I learned a couple of years ago is 
I don't know if I learned it or just finally realized it is by the time you're an assistant city manager or city manager of an organization, you really only get to deal with the problems at this point. Um, you know, all the fun stuff and all the stuff that's easily solved has typically already been solved. So these are really kind of, um, you know, sticky challenges in some, uh, sometimes, and it really is helpful to have kind of a framework to go through that. So looking back over your experience in the city manager's office, speaking about innovation, what is some of that innovation that you're particularly proud of achieving? Well, I think, um, again, thinking about innovation is taking what you do know and applying it to what you don't know. What we've tried to do here, and, and most of what my effort has been, is trying to create an environment that's conducive for innovation. So a, a couple of things on that. So in the Great Recession, we, when we were coming into the Great Recession, we realized that we had to make decisions and we had to make decisions fast because revenues were dramatically below what they had been. And it was anticipated that it would be really a, a long time before they would get back anywhere to what we had seen in, in 2008. And so what we realized at the time is we didn't always have the information at our disposal to, or easily accessible to make those decisions, right? Um, so we really set about the process of trying to form what kind of a high performance and innovative government looks like. So one of the things we did is our city manager at the time was at a council meeting and he announced to everybody that um, in order to, to do better at this, we were going to join a local benchmarking consortium in our region. And I had to kind of tell him afterwards that one didn't really exist. And so I think he basically said, well, go make it happen. Ten years ago, uh, we set out and, and reached out to the other large cities in our region, and we started uh, what we now call our Valley Benchmark Cities Network. And uh, that group has recently issued its seventh trend report and has been meeting uh, regularly and working collaboratively together for 10 years this October. So that was something that, uh, although there were some other efforts that were in place uh, in other states, this was kind of a new and innovative thing because we were all kind of collaboratively working together and deciding that we would willingly share information and learn and grow from that data sharing so that we could ultimately improve the way we do local government services in the region and uh, hopefully allow that to spread more broadly as well. We also uh, realized that we really needed kind of a framework uh, for doing this. So I, it's probably not going to surprise you at this point, but I went out, researched best practices, looked at the uh, elements in common and other high-performing organizations, and we put up a some guiding principles for what we did and an action plan for what we did, formed an interdepartmental team of people that had an interest in this from across our organization, and set about on this effort of working through these guiding principles, uh, working through this action plan. And, uh, you know, that involves today such things as our high performance and innovation team, which includes a data analytics team, a behavioral insights team, process improvement team, a reporting and benchmarking team, and an innovation team and a behavioral insights team, um, all comprised of city employees, all as kind of leadership development opportunities for each one of them, and all of uh, different aspects at looking at how we improve uh, local government performance. Uh, Behavioral Insights looks at how do we take what we know about human behavior and design better programs and services. Data Analytics is, is how do we kind of increase 
and ease the prevalence for how people can interact with and learn from data. Started an open data portal on our website as a result of that. Our process improvement team, you've heard of Lean and uh, Six Sigma and other things. We've taken those and modified those, and we pulled teams together that facilitate process improvement efforts to try and uh, increase uh, the efficiency with which programs um, and services are run within our organization. And then we've also uh, most recently um, worked with Bloomberg Philanthropies to go through an innovation training process where we take human-centered design and apply that uh, to innovation as well. So um, that team is about ready to conclude their year's worth of work, and they've been focusing in particular about how do we improve the way that we provide services to the most isolated in our community, um, isolated kind of homebound seniors that are um, very dependent on both nonprofit organizations and the city uh, for the services, particularly when uh, they're in crisis. And so that team is um, iterating and ideating around efforts involving stakeholders and uh, people that are knowledgeable about this to try and design a better way to do that. And all of that uh, went back to, um, you know, not being as prepared as we kind of hoped we would have been back in the Great Recession. So um, we were actually recognized um, a couple of years ago by Bloomberg Philanthropies through their uh, What Works City certification program. At the time we were certified, we were the first city in Arizona to be certified and the smallest city in the country to be you know, certified at that time. And uh, thrilled that since then, um, other cities in Arizona have uh, participated, other smaller cities have, have gotten through. And, and I think that also speaks to what really came out of that effort is that to really learn, you also need to build collaborative networks to learn from others that are like you, but at times to learn from others that are different from you and really uh, to strive to, to get better through that. I, uh, I love that story of you essentially having to create a benchmarking consortium from scratch. And to a lot of listeners, that actually might be quite surprising that even though you're a city that sits beside a dozen other cities that look very similar to you, that do very similar things, that level of collaboration and benchmarking isn't normal, even despite the massive benefits that it will provide. What are some of those barriers to collaboration? Well, I think one is that we're also busy just doing the work that we have to do and um, uh, responding to the problems that are facing us each day that we don't have time for that more you know, proactive uh, work and really uh, the work that um, has much longer term benefits, right? So that's, that's one thing. And that's not just common to cities. That's, that's a human, human issue. Um, that we're so much more reactive than we are uh, proactive. You know, even though we're all in the same region and in the same county and in the same state, cities develop differently for reasons, kind of end up in some pretty, you know, significant differences in how uh, operations are done. There's also, uh, you know, a huge amount of uh, difference in scale there as well. Uh, You know, the city of uh, Phoenix is the, the fifth largest city in the country, um, and it is as large as all the other 10 next largest cities combined. There are some economies of scale that happen there, but there's some um, you know, challenges that, that come with that as well. And so there's, there's not, it's, it's not always as easy to do kind of one for one comparisons uh, between each one of the communities as you, you would think it is. 
And, and actually, this is, you know, we kind of hope that doing benchmarking was kind of uh, a prevailing practice or even a best practice. I, I, well, I think it's a best practice. I think it's, it's quite uncommon. Um, there are very few regions that I know that are really actively collaborating this way. That doesn't mean to say that they're not collaborating in other ways. Um, and, um, you know, really, this was, again, another case of uh, applying something that I did know and applying it to something that I didn't know. I was used when I was doing neighborhood work, we would get together with all the other uh, neighborhood uh, offices at the other cities, and we talk about the work that we were doing um, and learn from each other. And so it seemed very natural to me that when we were focusing on uh, performance measurement benchmarking, that we would do the same thing. And my understanding is, is that that kind of regional collaboration has also spurred other uh, collaborations as well. The one thing that makes it different is um, it, it really is still, even though it's been around for 10 years, still a very much informal thing. It's really each of the city managers saying, yeah, yeah, we agree to participate in this because we see the benefit to us in participating in this. There's no you know, intergovernmental agreement or contract or MOU that's signed uh, between us. It's just something that we do because we think it's a good idea. And I guess that also goes back to kind of my minimum effective dose uh, concept as well. So thus far, we haven't really touched on the, I guess, the governance structure of a city. And I know you do have a lot of experience working with elected officials. Looking at that governance structure and how cities operate, what are some areas that you think, from a very general perspective, that structure could be improved? You know, I probably do more thinking about this than I have answers about this. Um, So... As great as it is, the council manager form of government, uh, which is one of the two major forms of government and local governments in America. The other one is the strong mayor form of government, uh, like in New York City or Los Angeles or other large cities. The council manager form of government is out of the progressive movement that arose at the turn of the 20th century. And it was really, um, you know, centered around solving a real core problem. And that was that the local governments at the time were incredibly corrupt. Uh, to help solve that problem of incredible you know, corruption uh, with you know, groups like uh, Tammany Hall, led by Boss Tweed in, in New York City, but other cities have the same type of, of networks and control. Uh, the leaders of the movement at the time really looked to the publicly traded corporation as a model for how to do local government. And so uh, the, those people that started that is, you know, the, the stakeholders in the publicly traded corporation are like the citizens uh, in a local government. And the board of directors and the, seat, uh, and the chair of the board of directors is like the city council. Mayor is the chair of the board, right? And then the CEO of the corporation is like the city manager. And then the line departments like, you know, sales and marketing and operations are like the line departments in uh, local governments like police and fire and parks and recreation. So that model that was in place 110 years ago has served us well. But the question is, how can we really learn from how we've innovated and evolved both in the uh, business world and in the local government world and look at how we might, you know, innovate further uh, to have something that lasts another 110 years, right? So that's something I, I, I think about. I don't really have an answer to that, but I think that's a great question and a great way to think about it. Um, the other thing is, and obviously this is a hugely contentious issue in our country, but um, the way we do elections in government still kind of fundamentally um, 
you know, aside from vote by mail and the fact that we can scan them now, it's fundamentally kind of the same process as it was 100 years ago. You get a ballot and you mark a line uh, through where you want to vote and you don't mark through where you don't want to vote. Meanwhile, at the same time, uh, in the entertainment industry, we can have millions of people vote on their cell phones about what singer they think is the best singer of 10 singers that have performed that night or whatever it is. So we're able to massively engage people on a huge level for entertainment purposes, but we've not yet taken that and used that to uh, really effectively on the local government uh, or other governmental levels. So that, you know, when I take those two things together, those are things that I kind of think about and am mulling about and trying to figure out, okay, what does the you know future have in store for us on that? And how can we, um, be kind of working, you know, towards that direction rather than kind of fighting against that direction. Granted, both those things are, are fraught with challenges and are big issues to deal with. But I think those are important things that um, smart people and um, people that are committed to public service and are committed to making sure that uh, we have a strong community involvement are thinking about. Fantastic. So for the closing question, and you did touch on this already, what's one accepted truth of local government that you think is wrong? You said it was that people can't fight City Hall. Can you elaborate? Yeah, and let, let me do it just by kind of expanding on that a little bit more. So if the fundamental problem that the progressive movement and the council manager forum government were designed to solve uh, is that um, there was power centralized in the hands of very few, and it was very corrupt and very unethical, right? So you fix that problem by you know, starting a new profession, balance the power between an elected local governing body and a professionally trained manager to run the day-to-day operations, right? So if the problem that we were trying to solve at the turn of the 20th century was corruption ethics and integrate, you know, integrating into local government this kind of balance of power between elected leadership and professional management. So let's think about what the key problem is that we're really, you know, facing in local governments today. Now, I think we probably have a big debate about a lot of those things, but the one thing that I see over and over again is that relatively few people are really actively involved in the decision-making of the community. So, um, you know, this, you know, kind of comes down to this concept of, you know, people thinking you can't fight city hall, right? Because they may not know somebody or they, they don't have it or they, they don't have the, the time or the resources uh, to be able to you know, mount a campaign to really influence it. And even though I think that concept is fundamentally flawed, it gets at um, kind of a, a, a more core thing. And that is, is that most people are not involved meaningfully in the efforts of their local government. And most of the kind of attempts to reform that through technology have just ended up in amplifying uh, the few people that are really involved. You know, so we hear a lot from a few people rather than people more broadly, more engaged. Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons why that happens, right? But I think if we really think through those issues and maybe we try to give some of that decision-making back uh, to people so that, you know, maybe a, a, 
a vote on an issue can be taken in a similar way uh, using you know smartphones or using uh, their you know computers to vote on you know how they feel about this particular thing. Maybe that would help people get more engaged. I I, I don't know, but you know as I, I mentioned before, um, one of the things that I mean just absolutely thrills me as a local government professional is when people are interested in and take the time to learn more about their community and get involved in their community. And I just, I really appreciate that. I, I uh, have really enjoyed working and learning from all the elected officials and the appointed officials that I've worked through over the years. And like I said, I always try to learn something from everyone and, and get better from each one of uh, them. And um, I really do enjoy when there's a, a face with a problem going out and getting into the community and, and trying to see things from other people's perspective to kind of learn why um, that's an important issue to them or not. But I, th- I think it's something that um, I think it's something that we do continuously work on in local government. Uh, community involvement's a, a thing that we're always working on and always trying to get better at. But I think it's always also something where you know there's more you know room for improvement on it. And I, th- I think that. The one key thing about innovation and trying things differently is you have to be willing uh, for something not to work, right, in order to try something that's untested. And I think that's another challenge that we have is that sometimes the the pressure is so intense that we can't back off a little bit and allow an opportunity for something to be successful or even be unsuccessful, you know, as, as a means or as a way to make something better for everyone. Brent, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and the positive, progressive energy you're bringing to your work. Really appreciate you speaking and please keep up the awesome work in Scottsdale. Thank you. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.